If you have a Bible with you, you could turn to Luke chapter 19, verse 45. Uh, if you don't, I'd encourage you to take a pew Bible in front of you. It's page 879, Luke chapter 19. It's so great to have the opportunity to preach to you this morning, and that means that other people are doing other things. I'm thankful for Pastor Tim leading us in worship to sing and join our voices together. Thankful for the opportunity from Pastor Calvin. Uh, he and his family are away this morning uh, celebrating the marriage of his oldest son, Richard, in Atlanta. And so be thinking about them and praying for them. Uh, he let me know that they'll actually be singing before the throne of God above a few hours from now. And so at least in that way, we've joined our hearts together to worship the Lord and with the same words, the same lyrics. They'll be back with us later this week. Over the last several months, we've skipped around the book of Luke a bit, really in order to make sense of some of the major themes that Luke presents. Our text today marks a major turning point for us, though, as we move into the final four chapters of Luke's gospel. The text today begins uh, Jesus' last week before his crucifixion. And this is often known as Holy Week, and it begins with his triumphal entry, moves next to this moment where Jesus uh, draws near to the city of Jerusalem, and upon seeing the city, he cries and mourns because he recognizes that the people will ultimately reject him as king. Yet, our Savior continues into the city to be slain for those whom God would call to salvation. Our text picks up here at this point as Jesus enters the city and begins to minister in Jerusalem around the temple area. So with that being said, as the context, let me ask you to stand with me. And I'd like to pray first that God would help us to understand his word, and then I'll read the passage to us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we confess that we are blind to see and understand your scriptures apart from uh, you healing our eyes to see. Jesus, we pray that you would heal our blindness through the working of the Holy Spirit, that we might see ourselves rightly, that we might see the scriptures rightly, and that we might conform our lives to your holy word. We pray this in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching in the temple daily. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all of the people were hanging on his words. One day, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. 
So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Amen. You may be seated. What qualifies someone to be an authority? Whether we've thought much about that question or not, we have different qualities we're looking for to validate authority depending on the role and the responsibilities of a job. For example, we may look for credentials that are earned, such as degrees or certifications for those assuming a teaching role. We may look for experience as a way to validate others whose primary role is as a manager. Or perhaps we'll look for mental or physical skills from those who will lead our military. There's all different kinds of things that we look to to evaluate who we will place in authority. In our text today, Jesus comes into the holy city of Jerusalem and exercises an authority that the Jewish leaders resist. They do not validate it. This essentially creates this power struggle between Jesus and the leaders, ultimately leading to Jesus' crucifixion. Of course, tensions between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees are nothing new. If you know your New Testament well, you know that these tensions have been building for years now and have finally come to a climactic moment as Jesus moves towards his death. We could probably reduce this text and this sermon down to a single question related to authority, and it's this. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? And that stands as our title this morning for this sermon. The question is just as relevant for us today as it was in first century Jerusalem. And so I'd like to help us consider it by drawing out three categories to evaluate uh, our lives based on what we see in the text. So let's begin with category number one. Who's in charge of your worship? Who's in charge of your worship? In verses 45 and 46, Luke describes Jesus' famous act of cleansing the temple, and this time with notable concision compared to the other gospel writers. Essentially, he's, he's uh, pointing out two things that Jesus is giving. First, an appeal, and second, a rebuke. In both of these statements, Jesus pulls from the Old Testament prophets as a source of authority. The first, notice he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. This is from Isaiah 56, verse 7. The temple was built to be a place where God's presence dwelled with his people, where God was accessible to them. The temple is a tangible expression of what Jeremiah prophesied about when he says that, that God would say, they will be my people and I will be their God and their dwelling place is together. Really, since the beginning of uh, our time in sin, the whole purpose of redemption and the gospel has been getting back to being in a relationship with God. The temple was the primary place that this happened, and it was through prayer in the temple that this relationship between God 
and his people would develop and grow. But it seems that things have changed. It was no longer a place of fellowship with God through prayer. It had become something else altogether. And Jesus tells us exactly what's going on in his next statement, his rebuke, when he says, you have made it, you have made the temple a den of robbers. This he pulls from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. We know that Jesus does not pull any punches with the religious. But what does he mean by calling the temple a, quote, den of robbers? Well, it had been necessary for those traveling to the temple to have resources that they could purchase so that they could make appropriate sacrifices. There was also a temple tax that was taken to pay for the expenses of the temple. So in addition to markets for purchasing animal sacrifices, there were also places to exchange money. And if you go to Jerusalem today, you can see some of the places that were likely uh, vendors for these kinds of activities down from the Temple Mount. But at some point, the selling of sacrifices and the exchanging of money were no longer outside the temple. They had now made their way inside the court of the Gentiles, the outer court accessible to all people, both Jews and Gentiles. And essentially by doing this, the market had come into the house of God with all of its worldliness. You see, the market came with greed and ambition. It came with corruption and sin. It obscured the worship of God and promoted the worship of power, prestige, and money. And of course we know you cannot worship the Lord your God and money. One commentator, Daryl Bach, says it this way, Worship is a sacred trust where commerce and hypocrisy have no place. Unfortunately, the worship in the temple had been corrupted by both commerce and hypocrisy because God was no longer in charge of temple worship. Jesus' cleansing of the temple makes me wonder what happened, what practically took place that would lead them to this point in making such a grievous error? What caused the shift? Well, of course, the text doesn't tell us, but I wonder if you would allow me some liberty to make a suggestion on what might have happened. Perhaps with the best of intentions, a man named Benjamin might come to a man named Samuel and say, you know, Sam, what would make all this sacrificing so much easier is if we brought the sacrifices into the temple. Then people wouldn't have to go down and exchange money and buy their sacrifices. They could do it all right here. And so, of course, Sam says to Ben, yes, exactly. Let's optimize our worship. The temple can be a one-stop shop for all things worship. Many people have been disobedient in worship because they chose what was pragmatically convenient at the expense of God's instructions. When asked recently, what is the greatest danger to the American church, Presbyterian minister Ligon Duncan simply responded, pragmatism in our worship. 
when pragmatism, and what I mean by pragmatism is choosing to do what works as the authority of choosing what takes place. When pragmatism becomes our authority in worship, we have lost our way and no longer worship God as He has instructed us. There might be many ways that we could apply this principle, and before we do, to get back to the text, I think what we could say, even though there's some speculation in what I've just mentioned, what had happened was that they no longer worshiped God as He had prescribed. And so we have to get back to this idea of God has prescribed a way that we might worship. And if we don't worship in that way, no matter how sincere we may be, our worship does not please God. So how would God instruct us to worship? How would God have us to worship today? Again, there are many things that we could say, but let me give you two. And I think these two are particularly relevant for our time. The first, God has established the church as a local gathering, worshiping community. Yet, studies are showing now that people view 50% church attendance as quote-unquote faithful. 50%. Now, part of this is due to the culture we live in that allows us the freedom of spiritual content on demand. You can listen to the best sermons, you can hear the best worship music, all for the, from the convenience of your own home. Make no mistake, these things are a blessing, but they are not a substitute for gathered worship. When the writer to the Hebrews wanted to encourage his readers to persevere in the faith, he exhorted them to gather. Let me say that again. When the writer of the Hebrews wanted to encourage brothers and sisters to persevere in the faith, what he told them they should do is gather. So he says in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Let us not neglect meeting together as some have made a habit, but let us encourage one another And all the more as you see the day of the Lord approaching. If you're struggling in your faith, if you're struggling to believe, if you're struggling to love the Lord, you need to come to the gathering. Sundays should not be days when we say to ourselves and our loved ones, well, it looks like we've got to go to church again. No, we should look forward with great anticipation to Sunday mornings as the highlight of our week and say, today we get to go to church. Today we get to go be with God's people. Today we are uniquely encouraged as we gather together and hear testimonies of God's faithfulness and pray together and sing together and hear the word of God read together. Something happens as we gather. May 50% church attendance never be good enough for Bull Street Baptist Church. A second way we could apply this. We are to be a praying people. This is what those in the temple had neglected. If we worship on our own terms, if we worship neglecting what God has said, prayer will be lost first because we no longer need, have any need for God's activity in our worship gatherings. 
Tony Evans succinctly and rightly says, the absence of the priority of prayer in the church is a significant indicator that it has abandoned its primary calling. The absence of the priority of prayer in the church is an indication it has abandoned its primary calling. Brothers and sisters, the place the church gathers should be a place of prayer. If you'd like to be a part, a a more engaged part of praying as you come to church, I would encourage you to join us in the choir room at 9 a.m. before our adult Bible study groups start and pray with us for 10 or 15 minutes. We can gather together and pray. There's going to be opportunities for us this week that I'll give you later in our service to pray as we're scattered in in our own homes. But we should be, if we love the Lord and seek to worship Him as He has prescribed, we will be a people that pray. Point number two, who's in charge of your intake? Who's in charge of your intake? And what I mean by intake is the process of putting beliefs and thoughts and principles into our souls primarily by way and through our minds. Who's in charge of your intake? We look at the next two verses in 47 and 48. And Luke tells us that Jesus' activity in the temple continues after he removes the market. We see that he was teaching daily in the temple. In these two verses, the religious leaders and the people of the the city respond very differently to Jesus' teaching. So let's consider each of their responses. First, notice the response of the chief priest, the scribes, and the principal men. In verse 47, it says, And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Now, if we were to drop into the story, just drop into this story of what's taking place without prior context, we might assume that these religious leaders are some of Jesus's best friends. They're partnering together to do ministry, to proclaim the kingdom of God. These would have been the men that supported him most faithfully and followed him. Now, of course, we know that that's not the case. These were not Jesus's BFFs. We find, in fact, it's quite the opposite. Luke describes them as men who are seeking to destroy him. The evil conversations of Jesus' destruction begin to take place as Jesus is teaching in the temple. Let's pause for a moment and consider what is taking place. Consider the significance. Jesus, the King of the Jews, the Son of God, has ridden victoriously into the city of Jerusalem and has assumed the posture of teacher in the most sacred place in the entire world, the temple of God. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Wouldn't you have loved to have been with the people that are listening to the Son of God teach and proclaim the gospel? What an amazing moment. Well, the religious leaders don't share your enthusiasm. They are undone. They disregard his teaching and instead plot how they might kill him. And this should remind us that Jesus did not die because he was guilty of any crime worthy of death or any crime at all. 
His executioners had determined his guilt long before his trial. At this moment, the only thing that stays the murderous hand of the religious elite is the people of the city whom they fear more than God. Notice, second, the response of the people in the city. Contrast, contrasted to the actions of those we've just considered, we find the people of the city intently listening to Jesus. Luke says, the people were hanging on his words. Have you ever been so enthralled in something, everything else seems to fade away? Perhaps it's a book or a movie or a conversation you're having with a loved one, and it seems like you're the only two people in the room. This is what was happening in Jerusalem. Jesus is teaching, and everything else falls away as the people hang on every word he says. This scene reminds me of a dialogue Jesus has with his disciples in John's gospel. In John chapter 6, Jesus describes his own death and how those who are truly part of the kingdom of God will eat his flesh as the bread of life. Of course, that was alarming to some. And upon hearing it, many of his followers abandoned him. And Jesus then turns to his disciples and he asks, do you want to go away as well? Of course, Simon Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter was right. Jesus does indeed have the words of eternal life. And those who reject his teaching also reject Jesus himself. You cannot separate Jesus and his word. He is the word. Or to say this another way, to reject the words of eternal life is to reject eternal life itself. There is no other way to be saved apart from Jesus the Christ. A familiar saying that's become a colloquial phrase that means virtually nothing, you become what you eat. Of course, that's true to an extent. Certainly, we're thankful for the awareness uh, that that has caused us to be more mindful of the things that we eat and consume. But even more importantly is what we put into our souls. Remember Paul's words to Timothy? Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for the present life and the life to come. Who's in charge of your intake? Who's in charge of the things you're putting into your soul? Is it God from whom eternal life flows? Or are you in charge? Is the world in charge? One of the oldest church documents we have, known as the Teaching of the Twelve, begins this way. There are two ways, one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between these two ways. The way of God is the way of life, and the way of anything else, the way of death. Colossians chapter 3 gives us a beautiful picture of what practically we're talking about as to what we would put in our minds and in our hearts and in our souls. Colossians chapter 3 reads, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If we had not gotten it yet, he lists specific things. The ways of death are sexual morality, impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. He says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk coming from your mouth, lying, selfishness. These are the things of the world. These are the things that lead to death. Are you putting these things in your heart, in your soul? Reject these things, and instead, he says, put on them as God's chosen ones, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, selflessness, love, harmony, are the things that we're taking into our minds and allowing to affect our souls, producing fruit of righteousness that leads us to kindness and humility? Or are they producing anxieties? Or are they producing lustfulness? Are they producing anger and bitterness? There are two ways, brothers and sisters, one that leads to life and one that leads to death. Choose the way of life. Is God in charge of your intake? Point number three, who is in charge of your life? Who is in charge of your life? Now, this certainly includes the first two points, doesn't it? We're broadening as we come to our final point. Our worship and our intake are part of life. And Luke is showing us now that Jesus' authority extends to every place. It's not sufficient for us just to say, Jesus is in charge of my worship. Or Jesus is in charge of the things that I'm putting into my mind. Jesus is in charge of it all. We find Jesus again in the temple in chapter 20, verse 1. This time, the text tells us he is preaching the gospel. Again, imagine being there and hearing the Son of God proclaim the good news that there is salvation for anyone who believes and follows him. It is a weighty moment of rich teaching. And then the religious leaders come in. You can almost imagine the, the tension in the air just completely changing now as people prepare for another conflict. There's two questions in this section. The first, a question for Jesus. The elite ask him, where does your authority come from, Jesus? Who gave you the authority to change everything and to turn our whole system upside down? But they don't ask with the intention of finding the answer that they might believe. There is no humility in the asking, only hatred and anger. Church Father Augustine says so well here, they are, they are looking for a pretext, not a faith. They wanted something by which to catch him, not something by which to be liberated. They don't want Jesus or what he offers. They want his destruction. Of course, Jesus knows their hearts. He knows of their hatred 
and their desire to kill him. He knows that their question is a trap. And so the second question is not to Jesus, but from Jesus to these elite. Jesus responds to the trap disguised as a question with a trap question of his own as he asked them about John the Baptist. Specifically, he asked whether John's baptism was from heaven or from man. The religious leaders quickly recognize the trap, and the text tells us they say, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? If we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. They are caught in the proverbial rock and hard place situation. So they're forced to reply with a false ignorance, we don't know. In the end, neither question is answered, but we all know at this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus is the Son of God, and his authority is intrinsic to his own nature and being as God. But even more than that has been given to him by the Father. Jesus, his authority comes from the supreme being of the universe. There is no one higher. There is no authority greater than what Jesus has been given. So who is in charge of your life? If you are a Christian today, you know that when Christ saved you from the coming judgment of God, he also bought you. Your life is his. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So the answer to the question, who's in charge of your life? For every Christian must be God. God is in charge of my life. But how often do we forget it? and make plans of our own without very much thought as to how God would have us live. To say it another way, every decision we make is a spiritual decision and an opportunity for worship or idolatry. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian of the mid-20th century, states this provocative statement. The response of the disciple of Christ is an act of obedience in following, not a confession of faith. This presses back against what we have held so dear as people who are children of the Reformation, that proudly and rightly say, salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. But what Bonhoeffer is helping us to see is perhaps we have made a, a critical error in our understanding of the gospel, where we have claimed a cheap and free grace that says, God has saved me from my sins, and so now that I'm a Christian, I can live however I want to. Now, we might not actually say that, but is that actually true? What Bonhoeffer's saying is, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ transforms our life from a life of sin and death to a life with Him, a life full of life. He's not just calling us to receive the benefits, He's calling us to be a slave of righteousness. 
a servant of God, to whom we say, wherever you lead, I'll go. Whatever you say, I'll do, because my life is completely surrendered to you. What God is looking for in all of us is obedience, that we might be obedient with whatever he might say. Now, if you're here today and you're fearing the idea of letting go of certain areas of your life, you are not alone. We all have that fear. We all struggle to entrust the Lord with all that we are and all that we have. Again, this is everything. Part of the reason we fear is that we don't really trust God, not with the most precious things to us. And I think part of the fear is also that God might call us to do something that we don't want to do that might be a sacrifice too hard to bear. And oh, my friends, we can trust God with our life. All the joys of this world, all the successes we might achieve, all the things we might do apart from God will in the end amount to one thing, a waste. So here's the question, truly, of the day. Will you trust God with all you are? Jackie Hill Perry provides a helpful statement when we think about the trustworthiness of God when she says, if God is holy, then he can't sin. If God can't sin, then he can't sin against me. And if he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? One of the hymns we've been singing over the last few months that I love so much is called, I Will Trust My Savior Jesus. And the first verse simply says, I will trust my Savior Jesus when my darkest doubts befall. Trust Him when to simply trust Him seems the hardest thing of all. It is hard, but it is right. Do you trust God today? And if you do, will you lay down everything before Him, surrendering all of your life and all of who you are and all of what you have and say, wherever you lead, Lord, whatever you ask me to do, I'll do, because I trust you. The only possible answer for us as Christians to the question of who's in charge is God and His Son, Jesus the Christ. May we always be a people that put Him in charge of all that we are. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are thankful that we can trust you. We pray that you would help us to trust you. In the difficult times, in the times where we're tempted to hold on to the treasures that we have, perhaps our status as someone who is single, we want to be married, we long to be married, we don't want to hand that over to you, and so we resist. Perhaps it's our finances or our children. Perhaps it's our education or our futures. There's a whole list of things, Lord, that we need to surrender to you this morning, and we pray for your help. We pray for the Holy Spirit's light to shine upon our hearts, that we might see areas of our life that we have not entrusted to you, and we might truly live out the profession that we have made. Jesus is 
Lord. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.